Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Peak Mind with Dr. Deepak Chopra. I cannot be more excited to share this episode with you all. I had the opportunity to host uh, Dr. Deepak Chopra and Eckhart Tolle at an incredible event at the Shrine Auditorium here in Los Angeles, and the wisdom shared was profound. Um, so it's it's been a long time coming that I've been applying, learning, and you know, iterating on some of the wisdom that I learned during that event. And in this interview, Dr. Chopra goes into the very nature of our consciousness and some of the false beliefs many of us hold on to that keep us from our full potential. And so I'm excited to share the episode. I think it's a a great episode to launch uh, Peak Mind with. Um, And I do want to acknowledge that there is some uh, background noise in this episode, uh, which we have corrected in all future episodes, but I apologize for any minor distraction. Uh, Please use it as a a vehicle for meditation (laughs) in terms of uh, being able to see beyond and and truly into the the nuances of the the words. Um, But I do apologize for that technical challenge. Uh, however, I could not be more excited to launch this podcast. It's been a long time coming. Um, I'll be honest, I had some fears around you know, how it would be received. And uh, I spent a great deal of time, energy, and resources in producing it. And so to be at integrity with all those I sat with and to uh, be at integrity with the intention, which is to help you unlock your full potential... Uh, I could not be more excited to commit to bringing you valuable content on a weekly basis. And yeah, it's been a journey. I'll share more on that journey uh, in the weeks to come. But for now, I'd like to start by sharing some incredible, valuable insights with Dr. G. Prak Chopra. I'm going to start with uh, with a quote from the episode. Dr. Chopra says, peak mind is no mind. Peak mind is pure consciousness, which is prior to all mind, prior to all thinking, prior to all perception, prior to all emotions. So I would call that the highest intelligence, choiceless awareness or the state of pure being. So if you're in the state of pure being, there is no memory or regret. There is just this and the rest is all imagination. The universe evolves through you. Beautiful quote. Uh, This episode is absolutely rich with wisdom. Uh, I've included a breakdown in the show notes uh, below. Please, please, please subscribe on iTunes, on YouTube. Um, Share across all platforms. Um, You know, uh, it's our intention, my intention to put forth free, valuable content. But the way in which you can see that grow and spread is by sharing it leaving uh, a positive review if you if you loved it. If there's any challenges, please feel free to, or if you have any uh, feedback that you, in where you, which this, this series can be improved, please feel free to reach out to me directly and uh, I will apply um, any comments, any wisdom, any direct feedback um, to continuing to improve the experience for all of you. So please, please share, please uh, comment, please leave a review and um, subscribe. 
This episode is brought to you by Foria Wellness. Foria is one of my favorite companies. I've tried a bunch of different CBD products in the market um, and found that they have an extraordinarily high-end product. It's been third-party tested. They use only organic ingredients. I know the owner, Matt, extremely well, and he's a fiend for quality. And um, I basically reached out to him and I said, look, I love the product. I'd love to feature it on the show. Um, CBD, for those of you that don't know, um, has been shown to have anti-inflammatory effects. It can be good for pain modulation. Um, It's great for uh, anxiety and reducing anxiety. Uh, can be mood boosting and and basically can help soothe over those kind of stressors that occur on a day-to-day basis. So I take their basics formula. Um, They have a 500, a new formulation actually, but I take their 1,000 milligrams um, and use it on a daily basis. Um, I find it extremely helpful to just sort of keep me at ease, if you will. Um, But you should check out their site because they've actually got a tremendous amount of research Um, And it's fascinating to deep dive. I actually watched a series all on the endocannabinoid system. Uh, Really, really powerful in regards to sort of the new frontiers of wellness. So check them out, foriawellness.com. And if you put in peak at checkout, you get 20% off all their products. And they have a variety of different uh, amazing products. So check them out, foriawellness.com. This episode is also brought to you by another of my favorite companies, which is Thrive Probiotic. Uh, I've looked at a lot of different probiotics on the market, and uh, frankly, the quality is all over the place. What I like about uh, Just Thrive is it sort of replaces the outdated approach of reseeding the gut, um, which would be like kind of throwing seeds in an abandoned garden, and takes more of like a reconditioning approach which is more like hiring a gardener to manage the garden, till the soil, pull out the weeds, plant seeds for them to grow effectively. I have taken antibiotics at several points in my life uh, when I lived in Sri Lanka as an anti-malarial, um, a couple times when I was afraid of Lyme, and including actually right now I'm on antibiotics, um, which I try to avoid because I know it has, you know, uh, unalterable consequences on the gut, but obviously, you know, you got to weigh, weigh things on the scale. And, and right now, um, I don't even want to take a chance at getting Lyme. So I'm on um, anti, uh, antibiotics, but I intend to uh, and have been using their probiotics and will use their prebiotic, uh, probiotic, as well as their K2, which is an incredible brain boosting supplement um, as I recondition uh, post antibiotics. So They have a really high-grade product. It's clinically uh, proven. Uh, For those of you that don't know, K2 is also an incredible... uh, I'm using that alongside my prebiotic, but um, K2 is great for heart health. Um, It's a major component in the brain. You don't find it optimally in the Western diet, so it's incredible. It's supporting sort of growth and development. Um, and it has been featured a lot in the press lately. So if you haven't checked it out, go to thriveprobiotic.com and look up uh, vitamin K2-7. Um, it's, it's really deserving the heyday it's, it's having at the moment. So um, check out thriveprobiotic.com. Um, I highly recommend their prebiotic, their probiotic, um, the K2. I'm using them all. And, uh, and, and find it just to be a really a, a company with a lot of integrity. So thriveprobiotic.com, if you, if you put in peak at checkout, you get 15% off. So 
<clears throat> Without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce the one and only Dr. Deepak Chopra. Dr. Deepak Chopra, uh, just outside of the Chopra Center in San Diego. Dr. Chopra, it's an honor to be here with you. Thank you. Uh, we, I was very much inspired, actually, by an event that you did recently at the Shrine Auditorium uh, with, with Eckhart Tolle, and uh, have been following your work for some time, and most recently did a deep dive into your history. Uh, one of the things I'd love for you to talk about is if you will, just do us the honor of going back a little bit from, from your time in, in India as, as, a, as a young man and what it was like to transition. I know a lot of young people, um, you know, are going through, through different challenges and changes in their life. How has, how has your transition kind of evolved? And, and if you had any advice for young people looking back on your 25-year-old self, what, what might that look like? Well, I grew up in a wonderful family. My father was a a British uh, trained cardiologist. Uh, my mother was uh, educated, not, uh, uh, you know, she was college ed educated. She was very familiar with uh, the great mythologies of India, but also in general was a great storyteller. So I had a very happy childhood. I went to an Irish Christian missionary school. Um, I uh, learned everything about Indian and English literature. So you can say I was educated in literature more than anything else. Uh, Indian literature, the great poets, Kalidas, Tagore, etc. And then the great uh, Western writers, everyone from Dostoevsky to Tolstoy, Dickens, uh, Thomas Hardy, Shakespeare, etc. Uh, when I was 14, uh, my father, uh, who was a doctor, wanted me to follow in his profession, but didn't want to kind of do it overtly. He gave me a bunch of books because he knew I wanted to be a writer of literature. Yeah. So he gave me a bunch of books, and all the protagonists were doctors. So he indirectly influenced me to go into medicine. I had to suddenly switch at the age of 14 years from English literature to biology, physics, and chemistry. I went to medical school then, of pre-med and medical school in India. The medical school I went to was very westernized. It was sure. funded by America and foundations, etc. So even while I was in medical school, I was recruited by American foundations to come to the West wasn't a difficult transition because I was already trained in, in all of Western thinking, biology and physics and chemistry and medicine. My first year was at a community hospital in New Jersey. And then after that, I transitioned to Boston. And I was with all the major hospitals, teaching hospitals in Boston like the Boston VA, the New England Deaconess, uh, New England Medical Center. They were associated with BU, Tufts, and Harvard, Harvard Universities. Yeah. So I did uh, my training in internal medicine, endocrinology, 
and then transitioned to neuroendocrinology, got interested in brain chemistry, started seeing the connection between what happens in consciousness and what happens in brain, and subsequently what happens in biology. Started seeing patients, wondering about why different patients who had the same illness, saw the same physician, got the same treatment, had different outcomes, so slowly got interested in mind-body-spirit. As one of the leaders in mind-body medicine, what would you say are some of the things that people can do to have a peak mind? So as, as, you, as you evolve into the brain being sort of one of the final frontiers, um, and I know you shifted from a, a predominantly Western paradigm in terms of your training to a, um, you know, a, a more evolved philosophy blended with Ayurveda and, and other forms of medicine, what would you say are, are a few things that you can do to, to really enhance your consciousness and, and your brain health? Well, some of the things are actually very physical uh, aspects of daily life. <clears throat> so good sleep is one of them. Yeah. And that means eight hours of sleep without uh, taking any medication or alcohol, uh, enjoying the full benefits of both deep sleep and uh, dream state, which are actually spiritual states, mm -hmm. which uh, take you back to non-local consciousness. And the second is, in my opinion, exercise, but uh, more importantly, yoga and pranayama, because they enhance mind-body integration. The third is cultivating healthy emotions like love, compassion, joy, equanimity, peace, empathy, gratitude. Uh, the fourth is um, um, making sure that your diet is free of any poisons, which means it's not uh, food that's uh, manufactured, processed, refined, has lots of sugar, antibiotics, chemicals, hormones. In other words, manufactured food of any kind, in my opinion, also genetically modified because it interferes with the ecology of our uh, microbiome, which is 2.2 million genes in our body, which are of microbial origin. So between those, uh, sleep, meditation, movement, uh, which includes yoga, pranayama, etc., emotions, and uh, nutrition, I think you're creating the template. Now, um, I think if you really want to go into peak mind, which might be a misnomer, I realize you're using that peak mind, because peak mind is no mind. Um, the peak mind is pure consciousness, uh, which is prior to all mind, prior to all thinking, prior to all perception, prior to all uh, emotions. Uh, so I would call that the highest intelligence, choiceless awareness or just being. Mm. So when you're in that choiceless awareness or state of pure being, then um, there's no resistance to what is right now. Uh, there's no anticipation. There's no uh, burden of memory or regret. And there is just this. And when there is just this, which is reality, the rest is all imagination. Mm. Other than this very moment, the rest exists in imagination. Five minutes ago is now a memory. Yes. It's a dream. Two minutes from now is also a dream. Yes. Now is what is. 
And if you remain in that state of choiceless awareness, or at least you make that your internal reference point, then I think universal consciousness, or whatever you want to call it, the uh, ontological um, primitive of the universe, from where the whole universe is right now, self-organizing, self-regulating, evolving, with sentience and complementarity, where mind and body, biological organism and universe are all one holistic activity, it spontaneously downloads. Yes. So you don't have to do anything. I think in that state is total non-doing and everything happens, the universe evolves through you or through this whatever body-mind yes. system we have. Beautifully said. I, I suppose what it evokes for me, because I, I actually lived in Sri Lanka for a couple of years, um, and at that point was studying Buddhism, uh, it, it was, it's interesting because in, I think in, in this day and age we now live uh, where time is, is reified anew, right? So it, it used to be defined by the rising and setting of the sun, and now it's the tweets and the, you know, we're, we're surrounded by various things that take us out of the moment. So. Given that the given that the essence of, of, of consciousness is born in this moment, what can people do to ground themselves in the moment, given our modern times? Maybe doing is the wrong question, yeah. because non-doing. But you know, people are watching us right now. I would ask them, as they're watching us, and as I would ask you, is turn your attention to who's doing the watching. You feel a presence. That's you. It's not your mind. It's that presence or awareness or consciousness, if you want, the spirit, the presence of spirit in which the whole universe arises and subsides. And it arises and subsides as sensations, images, feelings and thoughts. That's all there is. There is awareness, and then there are sensations generated in awareness. We call them sense perceptions, sound, touch, sight, taste, smell, like the sound of that bird right now, you know, or so many birds right now, the humming of the camera as it's moving. These are all sensations that are arising in awareness, they're experienced in awareness, and they subside in awareness. Similarly, there might be images. If I close my eyes, I can, while I'm hearing the sound, I can also hear that sound and imagine a sunset or the beautiful face of someone I love. Sensations, images, feelings, emotions, and thoughts. These are generated by awareness or consciousness. They're, they occur in awareness. They're experienced in awareness. They're known in awareness, they're made out of awareness, and then they disappear back into awareness. Now, as a result of these experiences, we create certain concepts. So, a bunch of sensations, images, feelings, and thoughts collected together, we call that the mind. Mm. Another bunch of sensations, images, feelings, and thoughts, we call it the body. Another, we call it the universe, all concepts. Sure. There is no mind, there's no body, and there's no universe. There is only you and self-generated sensations, images, feelings, and thoughts. So you say, what is consciousness? Well, that's all there is. There is nothing else. 
And so, you know, my friend Rupert Spira and many others have discussed this with amongst ourselves. You know, people have a, such a hard time even defining consciousness. So I spent a week with people um, a few years ago, and finally after a week everybody agreed that consciousness is first-person experience. Mm. But I think we can go deeper. Consciousness is that in which experience occurs, experience is known, and out of which experience is made. So the sound that I'm hearing of the bird right this moment, or the humming, that is actually a modified form of my awareness. There's no sound in the real world. There's no sound in your eardrums. There's no sound in your brain. The sound is generated in consciousness. So, you know, right now people are looking at me. That image of me that they're experiencing is in their consciousness. Okay, because without their consciousness, what's coming is photons. Photons have no color, they have no dimensionality. Um, they're not experiencing photons, they're experiencing a three-dimensional world, which is so rich. Sure. And, you know, it's bursting with, uh, with richness that is being generated in their consciousness. This is a big shift we have to have. Yes. That you do not exist in the universe, the universe exists in you. Furthermore, it exists as a concept. Mm. There is no real universe other than the human universe for most people and there are bird universes and mosquito universes and dolphin universes and alligator universes I'm not privy to them although there is some <laughs> transpersonal connection because consciousness is transpersonal transspecies I don't think the dog in Obama's White House has any idea that it's referred to as a dog there's any idea that Obama is the president of the United States or an important person, that he's sitting in the Oval Office. These are concepts. They're yes. made-up stories. But yet, if Obama treats his dog with respect and love, the dog will wag, wag his tail. Yeah. And there's a trans-species, transpersonal flow of consciousness. Because that's the glue that holds everything together. You can call it love, but, you know, compassion, all of those things are byproducts of it. Consciousness is all there is. So, you know, if I ask somebody right now, if I ask you, and if I have done this with scientists, even brilliant neuroscientists, cognitive scientists, where are you this moment experiencing seeing me? Okay, I've asked this of people, regular people too. Some of them, they'll say, I'm experiencing seeing you here, pointing to your eyes. Well, just examine that for a moment. All that's coming to your eyes is colorless photons. By the time they go through your uh, lens, they invert. Your retina is curved, and your eyes are 9 centimeters apart. They're 2.5 centimeters by 2.5 centimeters. So if you're having the experience of seeing me in your eyes, you should be seeing two of me upside down curved. Well, whatever is happening in your eyes, seeing is not happening in your eyes. Yeah. At this point, somebody will point to their brain. They say, well, your brain is 10, point, 10 centimeters by 14 centimeters by 7 centimeters. How do I fit inside your brain? How does this whole universe 
fits inside your brain. How does the Milky Way galaxy fit inside your brain? You know, Rumi had a poem. He said, look at your eyes. They're so small, and yet they see enormous things. Mm -hmm. So where, whatever is happening in your brain, the experience of seeing me and hearing me and experiencing me is not happening in your brain. This is not happening in your brain. There are neural correlates, electrochemistry, doesn't explain the three-dimensional world with color and sound and texture and fragrance and richness that's not happening in your brain. Mm. So I think the only word we can use is it's happening in your consciousness and awareness. So then where is that? Well, since we can't find it, it must be formless. Sure. And since it's formless, it has no location in space-time. You are right now at the heart of the universe, experiencing this body, this mind, that universe. But who you are is not in space and time. Mm. Now, if you get that, you will have a religious experience. You will transcend. You will spontaneously experience truth, goodness, beauty, harmony, love, compassion, joy, equanimity. And you'll go beyond the fear of death because who you are is not in time. Mm. Every experience is in time, but you're not in time. So important, you know. Yes. But we, we get bamboozled by the superstition of matter. What we call the physical world is just a perceptual experience generated in our consciousness, experienced in our consciousness, made out of consciousness, and disappearing in consciousness. Who we are is that ontological primitive of the universe in which the all arises and subsides, but we are not in time. Um, we are not in time right now. Uh, every memory we have, we go there to fetch it. People say, what happens after I die? Well, you go to where you're right now present to bring out your thoughts, your memories, your desires, your perceptions, the sensations, thoughts, images. They're all coming from there right now. Hmm. But what do you say, I mean, absolutely profound if one can have that religious experience, if one can literally be in the words that you just shared in terms of that level of consciousness. But say a mother in Wichita, Kansas, who's has three kids and, and feels pulled from every direction in, in, in each moment, what kind of, what's a way in which amidst sort of a sense of stress or challenge where, where, where the perceived challenges of this world can can bring about a sense of stress. What are the ways in which we can alleviate that suffering and tap into that greater sense well, of Well, if that mother in Wichita, Kansas is watching us right now, I would tell her, uh, ask yourself, who's watching? And turn inward right now. Or you can stop any time in the day and ask yourself, am I aware? And then from that level of awareness, observe your body as um, something that is being experienced in you, your mind. Uh, make awareness the center of all experience, because it is anyway the center of all experience. And see your mind and your body and the universe as projections of that. And now you can take, your take care of your children, your job, from that internal reference point, which is not internal. Now, if that seems so difficult, which it shouldn't be, all you have to do is ask yourself, am I aware? Look around, 
close your eyes, feel your body. Don't put it into words, just have the experience. And turn to who or what is having that experience. And if you do that regularly, which is a non-doing actually, then you will not confuse yourself with the scenery. You are the seer in the midst of the changing scenery. The scenery is constantly changing, but the seer is the eternal silent witnessing awareness in which the scenery comes and goes. Some of that scenery is mental, some of it is emotional, some of it is your body, some of it is the world, but you're none of those. You're pure spirit, which is not in time. Now, also, you can do the things I started with. You know, you can take a little time in meditation, um, in reflection. You can ask yourself, who am I? What do I want? Is there meaning or purpose to my existence? What is it? Uh, another thing you can do is immediately stop, slow down, take a few deep breaths, and just be grateful for the fact that you exist. Mm. Somebody once said to me, I'm grateful for every breath. You don't need any more reason to be grateful. You know, you don't have to count out the things you're grateful for. Be grateful for existence and awareness of existence. Grateful for this moment, this breath. That'll take you a long, long way. Now, you know, there are other formal techniques. There's Buddha's wheel of awareness, awareness of sound, awareness of five senses, awareness of body, awareness of musculoskeletal system, awareness of the organs inside your body, the yogic techniques of pratyahara or looking inward and seeing across the screen of your consciousness anything, your body, your organs, your breath, your relationships, your emotions, your thoughts. There, you can go on and on in the elaboration of these techniques. Mm. And while I'm at it, I should say that, you know, now that the word mindfulness has become part of our collective consciousness, obviously we will never be able to get rid of it, but it's inaccurate mm. because the awareness of a thought is not a thought. Sure. The awareness of your mind is not your mind. And uh, true vipassana, which is the original teaching of an understanding of awareness, does not use the mind. It uses the ability to watch the mind, so in which all comes and goes. And you know, Buddha had this amazing insight. I mean, people ask, why did he get enlightened under a tree? Mm. Well, you know, here he's watching the tree. Sometimes he has his eyes closed and sometimes open. And then he sees the tree has roots that go into the whole ecosystem of life in the earth. It has these branches that uh, actually are a result of sunshine and air and water and wind and air and the infinite void. It has these flowers and seeds that are recycling life. He, he's not analyzing this, he's just seeing it. And he has an insight, mm. and that is this, like everything else, is a snapshot of an activity of the total universe. This is the universe in every grain of sand, in every twig on that tree, in every flower. It's the total universe. It's sunshine and rainfall and earth and water and wind and air, the infinite void, and I call it a tree. 
That is the human desire to give a name to every experience. So as soon as I give a name to every experience, there's a form. But if I look at that form, it's a phenomenon. Sure. And that phenomenon is the phenomenon of the entire universe. And that whole phenomenon is occurring in my own being. Hmm. So from form, from name to form to phenomenon to formlessness, which is who I am. And being formless and not in time, I'm liberated right this moment. Yes. Can you speak a little bit about the subject-object referral? Because that, that, that was a, a really fundamental concept, I think, especially when you get besieged by, by fears. Yes, object referral means that you refer to an object for your identity. That object could be something as superficial as your identity comes from the amount of money you make, or your house, or your bank account, or your title. You're the president of the company. So, you know, collection of those identities is what we call ego. So ego identity is uh, some I, I of experience, which is somewhere here, and its identity is your bio. You know, you were born in such and such house, this is your religion, this is your country, this is your occupation, this is your uh, relationship, this is your house. That's an ego identity, which is a result of identifying with the objects of your experience, including your body and how it looks and all of that. Which would inherently so, be a suffering paradigm, I would imagine. It yeah. could be because it doesn't actually exist. If I go inside your body, there's, no, there's nobody there. Yes. Okay. I can look into your brain with an MRI and there's no little Michael sitting there. Okay, so the eye of experience is not here. The eye of experience is actually formless. No location, space-time. It is experiencing the body, the mind, and the universe right this moment. And that is your true self. That true self is formless, therefore not in space-time. It's a field of infinite possibility. But it's also a field of infinite creativity and joy and love and all the things that we value. So when you shift from this socially induced hallucination called the ego to your true self, then you're in subject referral. Otherwise, you're in object referral. Object referral is the cause of all the suffering in the world. All the suffering. It's the cause of war and terrorism and eco-destruction and climate change and atomic weapons and nuclear warfare and every form of suffering yes. is from not knowing your true identity. Your true identity is your innermost being, which is your innermost self, which is also the self of the entire universe. Because, you know, when you get to the basement of all creation, including yours, there's one infinite being, and you are part of that. You know Rumi's poem, you're not just a drop in the ocean, you're also the mighty ocean in the drop. Yes. So, object referral is simply ego identity. Mm. 
which then results in trying to grab on to things which are also, there's no such thing as a thing, there's only activity. And so you're grabbing on to sensations, images, feelings and thoughts that are intermittent coming and going. You're afraid of them, you're afraid of death which happens to the experience and it's all generated by object before. What are the ways that you've been able to uh, move beyond or presuming that it, that it comes back? I mean all of us have egos. What are the ways that you that are the most uh, kind of powerful ways that people can remove themselves from that? It's a combination of things. So I would say the first is sitting quietly and having awareness of either your breath mm. or some sensation in the body or an image in the mind and just observing it. That leads in, by itself to insight. Mm. Okay, that everything is just uh, coming and going of modifications of my own self. The second is then sitting in slowly and reflecting on important questions. Who am I? What do I want? What's my purpose? What am I grateful for? And uh, what's the meaning of my existence? You don't need to know the answers, but you must live those questions because if you don't live those questions, you'll never move into the answers. But if you live the questions, in life has an interesting way of moving you into the answers, either through an insight or an intuition or a creative response or what we call expanded awareness or even synchronicity, situations, circumstances, events, people show up and you say, oh, that's the answer. Or maybe that's the answer I needed right now. Then there are various uh, mental uh, uh, ways of transcending, using mantra for example, which I've done all my life. Transcendental meditation. A form of transcendental yeah. meditation, but mantra meditation. Sure. Transcendent, transcendental meditation is a brand sure. which talks about that. But with yeah, the mind vehicle, which is a sound, a sound. as a vehicle. Oh, yeah, it could be, by the way, it could be any of the five senses. Mm. Sound is most convenient, the mind sound, yes. but it could be an image. If I hold an image in my consciousness of a candle... So visualization, take, yeah. beautiful. Just one unit of, not even visualization in the big way. Mm. I could just hold the color red in my awareness mm. and it would help me transcend. Yeah. Uh, I could think of the fragrance of the rose and just put my attention in the uh, transcend. Or I could uh, put my attention and just the emotion of love and transcend. So anything that helps you transcend, but yeah, sound is mantra is easy. Yes. Okay. Then of course there's what is called sankalpa or intention, which is um, using a subtle intention for me, I mean, I use the subtle intention every day of a joyful, energetic body. Mm. Or I might use the intention of a loving, compassionate heart, or a reflective, alert mind, or just lightness of being, or humor, or laughter, or gratitude. These are different intentions, but I introduce that in a subtle way, let it go, and then go back to the stillness whatever technique I might be using, mantra meditation. All a combination of all these will take you there, provided you're also doing the other things I mentioned. Yes. Make sure you get good sleep, make sure you're 
diet is not poisonous. Make sure you move around. You know, and now that people are into yoga in such a big way, they should realize that the asanas of yoga, the word asana literally means seat of awareness. Mm. So whether you're doing cat-cow or you're doing sun salutation or you're doing the warrior pose, these all shift your awareness to that state of consciousness. So it's very important as you're doing the yoga asanas to bring your awareness to the theme behind the asana. Also to use your breath to move into that posture. Many yoga teachers now are totally teaching the full understanding of yoga as in Patanjali, you know. Because Patanjali says yoga is um, getting to, is how you get to the source of thought. But not only you get to the source of thought, you get to the source of the universe. Right. Yoga means union. So, you know, when he talks about the eight limbs of yoga, you know, the first two limbs are about yama and niyama, which bas basically means a good social and personal conduct. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go into all the details. What's the right thing to do right, right now? You know, maybe the golden rule would summarize the whole thing. Yes. Yama and niyama. Then he talks about pratyahara. Pratyahara is going inside, getting to know your the inside of your the spaces in your body, mm. you know, which are physical spaces, but there are also mental spaces. Yes. These mental spaces where thoughts are coming, images are coming. So he says, yama niyama pratyahara, going inward, which is withdrawal of the senses. Then he talks about pranayama. There are hundreds of breathing techniques that shift your awareness. And, you know, of course, when you go to a standard yoga class, they do one or two, you know, jai breathing and so on. But they're very profound. Every pranayama will change your state of awareness. So, yama, niyama, pratyahara, pranayama, and then. Uh, Dhyan, which is meditation, yes. dharna, which is focused attention, and samadhi, which is transcendence. And those are actually the limbs of yoga that will help you to go from a very constricted skin encapsulated ego identity to a universal identity. Yoga is, is very profound. Yes. Is, if, if you were to strip away, I mean, you've written many books, lectured all around the world. If you were to distill all that down, to, whether it be a book on yoga or, you know, to, to say one book or, 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 or one truth that you feel is the most fundamental, like if, you're, if, it, if this was your legacy and everything was wiped away, what would be the one reference point that you would suggest to people to tap into beginning this journey? Find out who you are. It's your ticket to freedom. That's mm. it. So one word would be self-awareness. Mm. You know, everything we learn in the world is about something. Yes. You know, it's about geography, history, astronomy, biology. But no one asks who wants to know and why. Okay? So sciences and all our education is about objects of experience. And yoga is about the subject of experience. Who wants to know and why? Who's the self that wants to know? We say self-organizing, self-evolving, self-regulating. These are words even biologists use, you know, when they describe nature's phenomenon. But what is the self? 
and no one asks that. Or people do ask that, but you know, science is about what we observe, and spirituality is about who's observing. Yes. So self-awareness is one word. I mean, Ramana Maharishi taught just one question throughout his life, all his life, except for the years he went into total silence. Mm. Who am I? Who am I? And when people began to get some insight, then he would say, then who's asking the question, who am I? <laughs> you know, slowly you realize that nobody actually knows who they are. Right. They, they're confusing themselves with their experiences, with their body, with their mind, with their emotions. They're not going back to the source, which is right here now. It's so so who, is, who is Deepak Chopra? Deepak Chopra is an assumed identity. It has no fundamental reality. Okay, so, so Deepak Chopra is a socially induced hallucination. <laughs> so behind Deepak Chopra is the self of the universe. Yes. And how does that differ from myself or anyone who might be watching us? Is it fundamentally the same? Uh, at a deep, deep level, yes. At the level beyond the matrix, yes. But uh, uh, we have different, what should I say, souls as a result of karma, memory, desire. So we have walked through different gardens, we've knelt at different graves, we've heard different songs, we've heard different stories, we've watched different movies, we've created the software of our souls. Mm. And that software of the soul is where the seeds of karma, memory and desire reside. And, but at the same time, where one is connected to the wholeness of all that exists, it's the drop in the ocean. Mm. So the drop, drop has the ocean in it, but yet it is a little different from the next one. What about, so you're familiar obviously with Joseph Campbell's notion of the hero's journey. So if, if one were to kind of distill that into the hero's journey, how do you deal with, I mean, especially someone like yourself who's, who's traveled and put work out on a consistent basis, um, in, in, inherently as you rise up in, in, your, in your voice, in your, in your beingness, there will be uh, antithetical forces, if you will, critics, or in the case of Luke Skywalker, the sort of the Darth Vader, the shadow that evolve. What are, what are the ways that people can, can contend with, or how have you contended with, those contrarian forces, whether it be a critique It's or an evolutionary journey. So in the beginning, I, I, um, uh, I um, responded with anger, resentment, self-righteousness, even hurt. Mm. Uh, but I, as I grew older, which happens, yes. I uh, became more tolerant of my critics, but I was still very interested in defending my point of view and winning the debate. Yes. And now, um, I don't feel like I need to do anything. Yeah. I don't need to defend my point of view. Um, there is a collective awakening in the world anyway. Those forces will always be there. And in fact, as the forces of evolution and creativity become even more dominant, those forces will also become quite dominant. We see them right now in the election that's coming up. Sure. So you, know, you have all these forces competing with each other. 
and it's all the way it should be. Last question. If you were to write a letter to the 25-year-old version of yourself, knowing what you know now, what, would, what advice would you give yourself? I would say that um, your inner being is the immeasurable potential of all that was, all that is, all that will be. The potentialities of your inner being are infinite. So don't compromise. Uh, you know, speak your truth and live your truth. Thank you for your truth. Thank you.